Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben. Today, my guest is Daryl G. Hart. Daryl's an Associate Professor of History at Hillsdale College in Michigan, and we're talking to Daryl today about his new book, American Catholic, The Politics of Faith During the Cold War, just published by Cornell University Press. Daryl. Congratulations on the book, and welcome back to the show. Thanks. Good to be with you again, uh, Crawford. I, I appreciate it. Oh, it's great. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's always fun to have you uh, and come and talk about your work. But before we do, just in case listeners haven't heard our previous conversation about your Yale book and Calvinism, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, okay. I'm an old guy, <laughs> um, and I've been teaching at Hillsdale 10 years I have um, <clears throat> worked a lot on the history of evangelicalism in the United States and Presbyterianism slash Calvinism. Um, we have worked at, at uh, Wheaton College, Westminster Seminaries, both both coasts, uh, but and now I'm here at Hillsdale, and I teach everything from American foreign policy, American intellectual history. Even I've sometimes taught colonial history. It's a it's a small school, big department, but we can. Um, the nature of the liberal arts uh, department is we can teach a lot of different things, and it's it's a great experience. Good, great, and of course we've had Richard Gamble from your department on here before as well, talking about his most recent book and uh, this new book, American Catholic: The Politics of Faith During the Cold War, comes out in the same series with Cornell. Just tell us a little bit about the series, Daryl, if you don't mind, because you're involved in this as well, aren't you? Yes. Um, <clears throat> The the original design was to to get try to find senior scholars, which has actually turned out to be much more difficult. Who wanted to sort of write a sh- relatively short book for a somewhat trade pressy audience about <clears throat> um, something they've been writing in a serious way, but maybe writing in a little bit more popular way. Um, on and also sort of dissent from some of the standard narratives about the way that faith and politics relate 
in the United States. Um, the, the co-founder of the series with me, uh, Larry Moore, who taught at Cornell for many years, was a guy who um, took issue maybe from a secular perspective with the standard narratives of American religious and political history. Um, and I've done it from a more Christian perspective, I think, at times. Um, so we were trying to sort of think about the standard narratives and, and to try to provide a, a way for scholars to issue some dissent in a, uh, but not in a smart alecky way, but in a serious way. And, um, but if you're trying to re- recruit senior scholars, they're, they're, they probably have maybe three or four contracts already signed. So it's hard to get them to sign on right away. And that's, that's been a bit of the challenge of the series. Yeah, good. And the series is about religion and American public life, isn't it? And yes. the, the book we're talking about today, American Catholic, um, is a book that really, I, I think, pushes um, several different historiographies, doesn't it? And the, 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 the writing about American Catholicism, but also the writing about American conservatism. And what you're interested in this book is how the two overlap and, in fact, have influenced each other. Mm. Now, Dal, you mentioned earlier on uh, your interest in evangelicalism, which I suppose is somewhat related to evangelicalism uh, and, and your history, uh, your interest in history of Presbyterianism and so on. This this book, American Catholic, represents a bit of a shift of focus for you, doesn't it? What was the background to the book? Yeah, well, um, I, I think I say this in, in the foreword, um, but there's no reason why I can't repeat it here. I started working at the Intercollegiate Studies Institute in 2003, I was a director of academic projects there. ISI, <clears throat> excuse me, is um, is one of the early institutions of uh, traditional or intellectual conservatism in the United States, founded in roughly the mid 1950s. Um, William F. Buckley was the was the founding president. It's gone through different presidents since then, um, but. And, and and so the conservative movement in the 1950s was anti-Catholic, um, <clears throat> libertarian, traditionalist in, in ways, talking about the West and philosophical traditions. <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, and so I started working there in 2003, and um, I came – I met a student at one of our initial conferences summer that summer, and – she said to me that uh, everyone knows she was converting to Rome from Pentecostalism. And I just wondered why. And she said, everyone knows to be a consistent conservative is to be Roman Catholic. Um, And that, you know, kind of lodged in my mind. And then I worked, worked there with a number of great friends who were also Roman Catholic and serious conservatives. And I've just been thinking then about the relationship between Protestantism and conservatism, and also Roman Catholics and conservatism. My earlier book, From Billy Graham to Sarah, Sarah Palin, tried to do the Protestant side of evangelicals' relationship to conservatism. Uh, in some ways, this, I guess, is a, is, a, is a sequel, although I think my, my views and understandings of conservatism are maybe better formed now than they were for that book, was all, which is actually 11 years old, I mean, 10 years old now. Um, so that that's how I came to this. And it is, I don't think it's telling tales out of school to, to say that conservatism of this kind 
is dominated by Roman Catholic intellectuals often, um, which is different from electoral politics. It's different from the Republican Party and how that all operates. And, of course, it's different from the kind of folks that you have recently written about, Christians, survivalists in, in, in the uh, Pacific Northwest. So there are many strains of, of groups who, who don't fit in with a um, progressive politics. This is one, one variety of that. Mm. Now, I suppose if you were going to summarize the book, you might say that it examines how conservative Catholics adapted their faith in order to save American conservatism. Would that be a fair way of summarizing the book? Well, I'm not sure what saving conservatism fits as much as maybe creating it. Um, I mean, Russell Kirk, who was part, is not a prominent figure in the book because the book is more about uh, people who identified as Roman Catholic and Kirk didn't convert until the 60s, even though he was writing his big book, um, The Conservative Mind, which was a New York Times bestseller in the 1950s and, and took people by surprise because that was a period when American academics were saying, well, the liberal, the tradition in America of politics and, and thought is really liberal. And, you know, in, in a sense, the American founding is classically classical liberal in political outlook. Um, so to have conservatism all of a sudden come come around was was a bit of a startling enterprise or proposition. Um, so I would say these Roman Catholics, some others were not Roman Catholic, but they were trying to create something that was conservative. I mean, the definition of conservatism that William Buckley gave was something like they're they're the ones people standing up and yelling stop. So they were trying to say stop to a number of developments in the United States, and they they took their inspiration from a number of places. But you know, part of somebody who looms large in the minds of conservatives is Edmund Burke and his reactions to the French Revolution and his reflections. Um, and Burke is a really smart guy. I mean, it's obvious that he has some great insights into society, human nature politics, um, you know, trying to adapt that 160 years later, perhaps, is a bit odd. During the Cold War, especially, um, the West, those nation states have changed dramatically since then. But still, there is this kind of uh, Burkean, Aristotelian tradition way of look, thinking about society, civil society, um, institutions like families, um, schools, churches, and the like, and creating, forming people, and their relationship both to local municipalities but also the state that informs a lot of this. Not to mention, though, also, and this is something that Burke wasn't concerned with, was communism. And anti-communism is huge in the 1950s, but it's also huge in the 1980s. So that's the great period of this conservatism's uh intellectual prosperity, you could argue. Mm. So the book is really about two kinds of changes then, isn't it? It's about changes within American Catholicism and also about changes within American conservatism. So to help us understand that, could you tell us a little bit about what the standard narrative of church-state relations was within Catholicism generally, but also within Catholicism in America before this big change began to right. take effect? 
and that that question is a good way of putting it. What I would try to do, the I mean, a lot of histories of conservatism or intellectual conservatism have not really featured church history. So I was trying to map the history of conservatism onto the history of the American church, at least. But you can't tell the history of the American church with also without also paying attention to the Vatican and the Vatican's relations to um, churches in Europe, for starters. So the standard understanding, as I understand it, and Rome has, you know, two millennia, well, at least a millennia of reflections on these matters and lots of interpreters who try to find, um, not that they have to find coherence, but there, you can draw on a number of different sources to construct what the, the um, relationship is. But typically it would have been a throne and altar arrangement where the church, the pope or bishop should cooperate with the prince or emperor or king in building a Christian society. Um, and there's a, a sense in which at least some of the medieval theorists would have said that this, the sword that the civil magistrate wields, he receives from the hand of the, of the Pope. So the Pope is really the head of this Christian commonwealth or, or Christendom. But there is a division of labor so that the, the church doesn't have blood on its hands. Um, the church, the Pope is not supposed to be uh, a civil authority, although of, case, of course the Pope is in the case of the Papal States up until 1871. But even to this day, the Vatican City has its own police, its own jails, its own courts, its own civil law, its own post office, its own bank. Those are all holdovers from the old Papal um, States. So it, it's it's really murky, but still that's the ideal relationship between church and state, cooperation and building Christian society and the magistrate taking his cues in Christian matters from the papacy. America doesn't, of course, fit that paradigm. So when Roman Catholics start showing up here, very small up until the mid mid nineteenth century, it's it's a it's an immigrant church, but also an immigrant church of of English, largely English background. Then you get waves of Irish, German migration, and then Eastern Europe, Southern Europe in the late 19th century and 20th centuries. So it's a polyglot church. It's a multicultural church. And life on the ground in the United States is oftentimes, it looks to me like it's relatively freewheeling. Bishops control. I mean, there are some major bishops in big cities that control a lot of the aspects of church life and, and parish life in those cities up until the 1950s. But on the other hand, the bishops have a fair degree of autonomy. Um, from the papacy, partly because the papacy is much more worried about what's happening in Europe. And there are all sorts of things from socialism, fascism, nationalism that occupy the Vatican's attention in the 19th century. America is a, it's an immigrant church. It's a largely Protestant, British sort of inflected church. So don't have to worry about that as much. But after World War II, when America emerges as a superpower uh, and and the leader of the free world, the Vatican begins to pay a lot more attention to it. And it's at that point that lay Roman Catholics have, I mean, they've always, I think lay Roman Catholics always had a lot of freedom uh, from their bishops, Al Smith, the, the first presidential candidate nominee in 1928 for the democratic party uh, lost, but, 
He was unaware of a lot of church teaching about church and state matters. It didn't really pertain to him. Kennedy, John F. Kennedy, the first president in 1960, also didn't seem to care a whole lot about what the church teaching was. So you have this formal teaching of the church, but then you have life on the ground. Um, and that changes in the 1960s when Vatican II recognizes religious freedom. And I think the one way to put it is up until 1960s, Vatican II, the church had taught, and Protestants had a version of this, but error has no rights. So the idea of giving rights to religious liberty, which could lead to erroneous views of religion, the church would not encourage that because that would encourage sin and the church shouldn't do that. But in the 1960s, um, the church recognizes um, the importance of religious freedom, re- religious freedom for all believers, Christian and, and non-Christian. And um, I mean, it, ha- it takes a while to how that how the church is going to sort that out. But that's the major change. Um, and that doesn't really have a lot to do necessarily with American Catholics who are conservative. The conservative movement wasn't about necessarily religious liberty at the time. It was much more about America first. America prosecuting the Cold War, standing up to the elites in the in the Republican Party who were too moderate, too willing to work with the UN, and also recognizing the importance of the American founding and trying to recover the the, the small government, limited government ideals of the founding. Now, there's a great irony, inconsistency there, because how do you fight a Cold War with a small government? That's the tension, it seems to me, of of modern conservatism. It's still the tension, I think, in in parts of the Republican Party as Mm. well. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy, and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals... Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off mm. so that's fascinating Darryl. so in some in some ways then the challenge for the people that you're writing about in this book is how to turn a religion a religious tradition that's broadly let's say monarchical um and and catholic to fit a new situation that's broadly speaking republican and protestant Right. So, so how did they do that? Who, who, who are some of the key thinkers? You describe in the book that a number of key thinkers are very closely related, for example. Right. Who are these key thinkers? How do they develop distinctive positions? And how does the church feel about this quite surprising adaptation of, uh, of, of, of theological claims to political realities in America? Right. Well, again, it's, for lay Roman Catholics, people like William F. Buckley, who founded National Review, um, 
it's it's pretty wide open. They, I, I don't think they experience much tension between, say, the Republican nature of American polity and the monarchical structures, hierarchical structures of the church. Um, because, again, life on the ground in the United States was, well, it's a republic. What are you what are you talking about? And 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 Democrats in big cities after these waves of immigration, urban politics is dominated by by uh, Roman Catholics. So, I mean, they come here and they know how to work the system of electoral politics in ways that I, I, I don't know enough about electoral politics in Europe and how that plays out there. But um, and the bishops, I think, in some ways, just go along for the ride with that. As long as the, the bishops can control a lot of other aspects of church life, it's not a problem. But anyway, when it comes to the theory of this, the big the poster boy, as it were, for this is um, is John Courtney Murray. And he's literally the poster boy in the, in the sense that he appears on the cover of Time magazine the month after JFK is elected president. Um, and Murray, but he other people were arguing this way, some historians, some legal scholars uh, in the 30s and 40s that there's a natural law tradition out of which they argue the American founding comes. So to celebrate the American founding was not necessarily to celebrate something alien to the church or Western tradition. It was actually to recover something or to see something in it that was all, always there. So Murray was trying to argue for this, um, in effect, natural law slash Christian founding to America and what came with that, of course, in the American experience was separation of church and state, which is something that the Vatican um, rejected. And and Murray ran into into opposition as a since he was a priest, a Jesuit, um, from his own superiors. But they had pressure put on them from the Vatican itself, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, or something. Like, I can't always get those prepositions right, but. Um, so there's opposition to Murray. He actually has to stop writing about church and state during the 1950s. But when John Paul, sorry, no, John the 23rd Pope becomes Pope in 1958. Kennedy becomes president in 1961, inauguration. Um, and the Vatican II, John had called Vatican II to meet from 1960, starting in 1962. They finished in 1965. Murray is an advisor to the bishops in Rome, um, not the most important advisor necessarily, but he certainly has a voice there. Um, and the American bishops wanted him there. Um, and, and that is the point when Rome seems to recognize the Americanist position, which was to, to say the separation of church and state, religious freedom. No, these are good things for the church. The church can actually be healthy and vigorous in this environment. It's not a threat to the church. And Vatican II seemed to go along with that argument. So Murray still remains a major figure, even though he dies in 1967, I believe. Um, he's, a, he's a major voice for um, Roman Catholic thinkers about church and state and also to uh, Roman Catholic conservatives mm. about politics. You mentioned a few moments ago, Daryl, the Cold War as an important context for this. And as I read the book, I wondered to what extent this 
theological development within the American Catholic Church, and indeed within the Catholic Church globally, was being driven by ultra-Protestant or sometimes secular polemicists, the likes of Paul Blanchard, for example, who are who are linking or comparing um, communist tyranny to the traditional structures and, 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 and distribution of power within the Catholic Church itself. Um, I don't know how much that really drives it. Um, it because the reason why I don't know is because uh, Al Smith, and I cover this in the book, faced opposition from a guy whose name I always forget, an Episcopal lawyer. I think his name was Marshall in the Atlantic Monthly. Sort of out of nowhere, this guy writes a piece in 1927 arguing why a Roman Catholic can't be president of the United States because they can't take vows to uphold the Constitution in in, in good conscience. Um, that was always there in Protestant polemics against Roman Catholics in America. Um, and, you know, part of the polemic also was that parochial schools are a threat to American systems because the public schools are the great bastion of the Republic and, and sort of assimilating people in, into the world. And if parochial schools are going to exist and teach all these immigrant Roman Catholics, well, what's that going to do to a coherent American society, a democracy, etc. Um, so I don't know that the Cold War necessarily changes that polemic. I mean, and 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 Blanchard writes his his bestseller book, although I'm not sure how many people read it um, in 1949. Um, and Murray actually begins his writings about church state matters and his his idea about the founding being based on natural law he's writing in response to Blanchard but people like William F Buckley at the National Review and the, and the writers that he assembles there I don't think that they were necessarily paying that much attention to the anti-catholic polemic they were simply they were so assimilated to America by that point and so concerned about trends in American society and foreign policy that that's where they were going. Now, it turned out they had a a bigger toolkit in a way than a lot of Protestant intellectuals or evangelicals because they had perhaps a richer intellectual tradition and reflection about politics. But <clears throat> but it's not always clear how much they drew upon that. It, it, it becomes clear in a, sort of the next wave of uh, Roman Catholic intellectuals that grow up around First Things magazine, Richard John Newhouse, formerly a Lutheran but becomes Roman Catholic and a priest. Um, but G George Weigel, Michael Novak's number of figures associated with that magazine are much more theological in their understanding of conservatism. And it's also the case that that's the group who become um, sort of the conduits for bringing evangelicals into the conservative world through initiatives that Newhouse started, like Evangelicals and Catholics together. So that's an, another wave of this. Um, and Buckley wouldn't have wouldn't have pulled that off. Buckley was, and the folks at National Review, I think, were much more hardwired to uh, electoral politics and party politics, how the Republican Party worked. The later iteration would have been more sensitive to how the churches 
and uh, religious networks worked and bringing those people into the political process. Mm. And one of the really interesting things about the end of the book, Daryl, is the way in which you show that a number of fairly prominent American Catholics, people who are in some pretty significant positions of influence, are now losing confidence in this Americanism and are instead going back to that older way of thinking about church-state relations right. that sometimes described as, as thrown an altar Catholicism. Right. Tell us a little bit more about that. Who's involved in that and how significant do you think it really is? Well, one of the chief players, um, by virtue of his position as a um, constitutional law professor at Harvard University. I mean, that's that's, that's pretty serious uh, achievement. Uh, he's a recent convert from, I think, a kind of nominal Episcopal background. Adrian Vermeule uh, is one among many figures. There are a number of... Um, Publications, many of them are, are online that are also in this integralist uh, posture, which is integral, obviously, is reacting to a kind of separation, church and state. So trying to go back to a more integrated understanding of uh, religious society where church and state cooperate in some ways and where these people go for their inspiration historically can vary from say, 18th century, 17th century France or something to 13th century Spain or something. I mean, it, there's so many different places they can go. But but this, but this, in, in the book, it comes up earlier from people who just don't like. There is, is a strain of um, American life, and I sometimes share this, that you don't like how commercial and vulgar our society is. And you see this as an outgrowth of, you know, a, a republic that was founded to be a commercial republic. And it's just without any kind of um, religious input from churches formally into government and society, if it's just separated out, it's one among many society of voluntary associations and it doesn't become that big a deal. So you have all this excess in America, the Super Bowl would be a good ex expression of that. Um, and people who don't don't care for that. And at that point, if you're a Roman Catholic, you have all sorts of places to go to push back against that. So even before the Integralists started, there were people like David Schindler, who was always critical of Weigel and Newhouse and their neo-Americanism, as he called it. This celebration, he thought it was too much a celebration of America, of capitalism, of success, of nationalism. Um, he's making these cases in the 80s and 90s, but it, it's only in more recently that integralism has cropped up. And I think it's associated in some ways with frustrations either over Trump or frustrations that Trump represented or, or, or channeled against the previous administration with the Obama administration and the managerial elites who are dominating American society. Um, but I think my, the more I study Roman Catholicism and teach it uh, some, I, I think there's always, because of the, the prominence of the papacy, um, and the papacy is, is the one who's sort of the final voice in church life, you can always appeal to that 
as a check against your ecclesiastical opponents, the people who you think are wrong in the church and are misunderstanding the church's relationship to society. Well, I'll go back to this Pope or something. I just read a book by Massimo Fagioli. I reviewed it for another, another publication. He's a, an Italian um, theologian who teaches at Villanova University outside of Philadelphia. And he's a really smart guy about uh, church history, especially prior to um, the modern period, prior to the French Revolution. Uh, is very instructive on the relationship between the papacy and, and bishops and, and various kingdoms and, and kings and princes in earlier times and how the Vatican worked during those earlier periods as well. But his book about Biden, President Biden and American Catholicism is in some ways, it's borderline screed about American society. Um, it's again, it's, it's dire effects. It's capitulation to modernity and capitalism and materialism. Um, and, um, it, so it kind of fits with this anti-American strain that's prominent, not prominent, that's, that's possible to American intellectuals. And it takes a different form when it comes to Roman Catholics, it seems. So integralism, I, I, I look at as a strain of that anti-Americanism, which has been present in academic life since at least the 1960s, if not since the 1930s. And, um, and the, the, and this integralism is a, again, a Roman Catholic strain of that. Well, Daryl, you just mentioned President Biden there. And obviously we're recording this conversation just after his 100th day in office. The integralists, on the one hand, want to disentangle this relationship between con- conservatism and Catholicism. Do you think President Biden might have the same effect? Oh man, it's really hard. I, I, I don't mean to cast aspersions on the president, but the hype that the press has created over his faith is just that. I think it's hype. I mean, I, I do think the faith has informed him in his grief about the death of his son and and the death of his. Uh, first wife, um, and I guess a child in that accident as well. I have no doubt that that's been a source of, of comfort to him. But the the arguments that somehow this faith has informed his politics since day one is, is, is just hard for me to believe. It seems to me he's much more like Al Smith, who's just gone about the, the, the work of American politics, um, dirty as it sometimes can be, and just done it and then, you know, go to church on Sunday. Um, so I, he's not an, he's not an intellectual. So I guess, in a what's different though now between say, uh, from the sixties with president Kennedy is that, um, coverage of the bishops and the national conference of bishops, um, the USCCB, United States conference of Catholic bishops, I think is how the initials go. Um, it's just more possible now to, to chart the way that they're reacting to the president and the press can play that up in various ways. So, so in some ways it seems to me that Biden can be a kind of accelerant depending how the press portrays him and his relationship to the bishops and where that will go. I think it will probably continue to polarize 
the American Catholic Church, which has been polarized. You, I could, I mean, I think people like Ross Douthat, who's New York Times columnist, who's written about American religion very thoughtfully. Um, I mean, he says that this polarization has been going on since Vatican II and the way Vatican II played out in the United States and other places. So I don't think President Biden can um, can somehow carry that burden on his back. The inter- you know, another curious question will be if how long Pope Francis lives and if there's another pope that comes on the scene, how much the Biden presidency could in any way be informing the College of Cardinals in their selection of, of a pope. I, I don't know that. I don't know the inner workings of the church that well. But it's hard for me to imagine with still the United States being as big a player as it is in world affairs. And I don't say that um, with any kind of delight because I I wish we were more, had more of the footprint of Canada. But um, uh, anyway, I, it's hard for me to imagine that a Biden presidency wouldn't inform in some ways the way the College of Cardinals chooses a successor. But, you know, Francis could well live another 10 years. Hmm. Well, so many questions. We'll have to wait and see. Carl, it has been great to talk to you today about your new book, American Catholic, The Politics of Faith During the Cold War, just published by Cornell University Press. And thanks for your time. Great. And I'm sorry for rambling on the way I did, but it was enjoyable. Well, before we wind up, tell us about your next book, which is coming out, which in a way takes you back to more familiar territory, doesn't it? Yes. Um, it's a spiritual biography of Ben Franklin. I think it's slated to come out with OUP Oxford um, in the fall. And um, and in the book, I argue that Franklin is a cultural Protestant. He's not a formal Protestant, but he embodies many of the um, – the elements of modern economic, political, uh, social life that it's not as if Protestants deserve all the credit for that, but they did introduce a lot of that. At least Protestant societies did. And, and Ben Franklin is surfing right along in that direction. And so he's more of a Protestant than people recognize. It's the surfing bit I'm mainly interested in. Maybe, <laughs> maybe we'll hear more about that. If we can invite you back onto the show to talk about the Ben Franklin bio too. Love to do it. Great. Well, Daryl, thanks for your time. Thanks for your time and take care. And thanks everyone else for listening. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.